0: And we are back. It is. uh, It is now November, and we're headed
1: toward, I guess, a very, very lonely Thanksgiving for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, You're you're here, right? You're hanging out. Oh yeah, yeah. Gonna stay here in town. Um, Thought about thought about hitting back, you know, because I I I did the uh, intrepid journey right at the beginning of all this. Yeah. Uh, whatever that holiday was, it was in May. Yeah. Uh, But I'm thinking, you know what? Had good luck. Don't don't don't, 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 don't 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 push it, brother should we talk should we should we mention Sean Oh yeah go ahead I just you know look um it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing for me because you know I I talked about it on the radio Sean Connery I'm talking about a yeah. double yeah. double yeah. Sean and, and
0: and and of course Alex Trebek recently And too.
1: Alex uh yeah um, um yeah. which is actually a tougher one for me Sean um I talked about him a little bit on the radio um, uh, it, it met him many times of course all those movies all those junkets uh, yeah, I did with Sean. But to be honest with you, um, not my favorite Bond. I'm a Roger Moore man. I know that this, is, <laughs> I know, you know, I know that all kinds of people are falling over. You know, Bridget was a strong Connery man. I'm yeah. a Roger Moore man. Roger was being a secret agent and loving it, <laughs> whereas so, Sean was a little bit more surly. So you know,
0: that's the thing. I break the bonds out into two different um, archetypes. One is the gentleman assassin. That's Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. That's Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. It's kind of Timothy Dalton, too. Yeah. Uh, I don't really know where Lazenby fits in here. He's kind of doing his own thing. But And then there is the the, the blue-collar South London bruiser who just happens to wear a tuxedo. <laughs> yeah. That's Sean Connery. And that's Daniel Craig.
1: Yeah. They always reminded me of guys who might have killed you anyway, whether or not they had that license. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, exactly.
0: I got that exactly. license, but you know what? I was yeah. going to
1: kill you anyhow.
0: Uh, it, it's funny. I've been watching over and over probably a little too much. The video of the, uh, the BAFTA award that Sean Connery received, uh, however many years ago, 15, 20 years ago where, uh, Billy Connolly introduced him. And it's just, it, it, it's really a joy. If you look it up online, it's really a joy because Billy Connolly is there wearing a tuxedo, which he's unaccustomed to doing. And he can't even, he can't even recite the speech with a straight face. He keeps cracking himself up because the whole thing, he, he just hates that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and then, and then he just starts laying into Sean Connery, and it's it's just a couple of old Scottish blokes and having a good time, and uh, it, it's really fun. Only so, Billy
1: Connolly could have got away with that. Would yeah? Is yeah. a, a deeply inside bunch of a deeply inside that. Scottish yeah. thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah,
0: you know, I mean, he Sc- Sean Connery, I think, deserves credit for changing acting, and we don't often give him enough credit for that. Is he one of the all-time great actors? No, but he changed acting because he was literally the first action star. No, he's not like Douglas Fairbanks and these guys who did their own stunts and whatnot. But in the modern, of the for the modern form, the guy who will uh, you know be in a chase and in a fight and who lays out those those zippy one-liners, everything that made Arnold such a big star and that's made Tom Cruise such a big star, they wouldn't be there. If not for Connery first. He's the guy that built that particular piece of, of film history, that archetypal hero that, that lays out the one liners and uh, the, the original action star. And he changed it, he changed cool. everything.
1: Yeah, I, I'm gonna recommend a, a movie for a lot of people. You know, look, a big long list of movies other than Bond movies for Sean Connery. So, yeah, even getting stuck on that I think is silly. Uh, but one of my favorite movies is Outland, one of my favorite movies of his, yeah. is Outland uh and, and it was just this really good sci-fi action uh, uh, peter cop, uh peter peter yeah uh movies and it's just well done stands up to this very day happened to watch it the other night stands up to this very day it's got to be a 35 year old movie so what is that uh late 70s early it's, 80s something like that it's, it's it's right on the heels of alien so it's it's early 80s you know it's using it's using the alien look and feel a little bit to to do its thing. But yeah, it's early eighties. Yeah. A thoroughly, thoroughly good movie. Check that one out. It holds up along with whatever bond movies you want to check out too. Yeah. And then you mentioned Alex, of course. Yeah. Alex. Trebek. Trebek. Uh,
0: it, it's, you know, I mean, one of Canada's great gifts to us. Um, it, it, you know, I mean, everyone who didn't know Alex Trebek more. I mean, he he lived in our living rooms, you know. Yeah. For, that's even,
1: even if you're just talking about Jeopardy, that's 36, 37 years right there. Yeah. And of course, you know, he hosted several game shows before. Yeah, um, Jeopardy. Uh, when, you know, back to the middle '70s, if not a little bit earlier. For years and years and years, when I lived in North Hollywood, there's a canyon up there called Fryman Canyon. And if you lived in the Valley of Los Angeles, uh, you know everybody knew about Fryman Canyon, and you'd go hike up Fryman Canyon. At the foot of Fryman Canyon, where one, generally speaking, entered uh, the canyon, the park, the walk, the trail, was Alex Trebek's estate. Uh, and it's really, it's just, you know, it's kind of pumping it up to call it a state. It was a nice, grand, big old house, yeah. you know, with yeah. a big old yard and everything. It was not so much on the state. It was just his house, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you would walk yeah. at the foot of the trail and you'd see Alex and he'd wave at folks and play with the dogs. And, yeah, uh, yeah, this is going all the way back to the, to, to, to the early nineties. He was really a, he was just a, he was just a, he was just a guy. He was just this guy, every yeah. bit as bright as he seemed on that show. You know, Alex knew the answers to all those questions. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, other than having to look at that card, he was that yeah. bright. He was that bright. Uh, and I, you know, I and, you know, met him a whole bunch of times, too, and was always a little bit upset that I could never, you know, there's a there's a disclaimer about being on Jeopardy. You can't know anybody, you know, on Jeopardy or anybody who works for Jeopardy. and It was one of those kind of things if you ever want to be on Jeopardy. And I should yeah. always tell people, you know, but for the fact that I know Alex Trebek. I'd probably be on <laughs> it was my it was my one out <laughs> for a yeah. uh, while I was never on jeopardy now that's gone <laughs> I can't say that anymore
0: well, it's going to be interesting to see you know he had his recommended replacements,
1: and uh you know it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens with that going forward. I'm kind of thinking Ken Jennings might be in line for that spot, you know long time jeopardy uh, champion he has a personality yes. about him, but he's not necessarily a host in any context there's
0: you know and and i'm trying to remember the interview that i saw with him when he first announced he had cancer there was there was a woman he identified as uh who he thought would be a great Ah. jeopardy host and i'm trying to remember who she was but i you know if you do a google on it you'll you'll come up with it yeah uh, yeah well we'll miss them both and it makes watching
1: those snl sketches with uh <laughs> with 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 the two of them, so much so much better. You know, you know, Alex is in a bunch of movies too. So this conversation isn't completely. Yeah, off. no, I mean, it's true. I mean, he's mostly playing Alex Trebek. Yeah, <laughs> when he's in movies, but he's and, in a bunch and, of them.
0: And on television, I mean, my favorite Alex Trebek appearance on television is the episode of Cheers where Cliff <laughs> is on Jeopardy. Do you remember this? <laughs>
1: oh yes, my God. And,
0: Cl- and Cliff is up by like. Like a hundred thousand dollars because the categories are things they say in bars, mothers and sons, the U.S. Postal <laughs> Service, right? It's like it's like it's it's a dream series of categories for for Cliff. And then uh, he bets he could have won right by betting nothing, and he wound up betting everything on a question of you know who are these people? And and his, his answer to Alex was, uh, "Who are four people who have never been in my dining room?" <laughs> and and Alex says, "I'm sorry, Cliff, you just lost everything." And and he says, "Alex, I can assure you, those four people have never been in my dining room." It's just <laughs> it's just brilliant, and and Trebek plays oh. it so beautifully because. The only way it works is if he reacts to Cliff's stupidity of of, of betting everything. It just the, the incredulous look on his face, you just think, wow, it's, Trebek's not going to get enough credit for playing himself, but he did a great job.
1: Oh, well, there it is. There it is. Yeah. Where shall we start, sir? Well, let's start. I'm going to start
0: off on on uh, uh, three here from uh, Kino but I got a whole bunch, but the first one is Deep Star Six. And, uh, you know, you remember, you remember this, right? This oh. was, uh, this was, this was, there were, there were a whole bunch of films around the time of the abyss
1: mm-hmm. that were all
0: underwater sea monster or action films. And, uh, th- this was, uh, you know, a, a, uh Mario Kassar and Andy Vanya production. And it was not great, but it was, you know, it meant to, it was kind of like, a, it was a little bit more like Alien under the water than than the Abyss was. The Abyss was more like Close Encounters under the water,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
0: and but they they came out within you know weeks or months of each other. And uh, uh, you know I, I I look at Deep Star Six today, directed by Sean S. Cunningham. That's Greg uh, Evigan in that movie, BJ the Bear. Yeah. It, right, it's it's not terrible. I mean, Tarion Black and and uh, and uh, Miguel Ferrer and Nia Peoples. I mean, people who are all somebody from that moment. Like it takes us back to to 1989. It's very much a late '80s kind of thing. But I, it's perfectly serviceable, and it comes with a whole ton of special features. Uh, the special effects supervisor and director, Sean S. Cunningham, do a do a commentary. Also has a screenwriter commentary. Isolated score selections, and then lots of interviews with just about everybody you can imagine, and uh, original EPK stuff. So
1: I know, I know, I know, I know. Carico was a well,
0: Carico, yeah.
1: It was a you know, it was a bit of a mess of a company, but they spit out some interesting, you know, the action films, including Showgirls, and yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff. We've also got uh, a double feature here.
0: I'm going to save the best one for last. Double feature of Fear No Evil and Ritual of Evil from 1969 and 1970 couple of couple of cool you know uh spooky uh genre films of that rosemary's baby kind of period and um both of them if, you know one there it's the same series same characters louis Jourdain is the star and and is very very elegant and creepy in them uh and um you know he's basically he's basically a psychiatrist who um looks out for paranormal stuff he's a, like a paranormal psychiatrist or psychologist and um it's got a lot of really kind of kind of cool stuff you know the occult was a big deal at that moment mainly because of rosemary's baby and then leading up to the exorcist so this sort of slots in right between the two of those but um it's worth checking out it's got a commentary on it uh, on both films from gary Girani, who is a film historian and screenwriter and um, some images, and then the last one, Tim. You're going to remember this: <laughs> Clint Walker in 1974 in the film Kill Dozer. Oh hell yeah! Uh, the 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 this this came right it came out before the car, uh, and uh, the idea of you know a a I mean look, Kill Dozer. It's a it's a a bulldozer is taken over by some kind of a life form and uh, and goes on a rampage. Um, I don't think they actually had a script before they thought of the title. (laughs) I think this is one of those Roger Corman things where somebody said, OMG, what about a movie called Killdozer?
1: (laughs) Great, I love the title. What's the plot? I don't know. Let's think up something. Oh, dude, that was like the progenitor of a few movies that, 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 that go all the way up through. A couple of years ago, there was a movie called Rubber. Yeah, about, about a tire, a killer tire.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, uh and of course you had you had overdrive, which was a yeah, an maximum, uh, uh, maximum, maximum overdrive. overdrive. Yeah, adaptation yeah. of the Stephen King novel. So yeah, uh, uh these these things have been uh, getting pissy and killing us for a while now.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's actually quite fun. It's got a commentary on it uh, by a couple of film historians and critics, and an interview with the director Jerry London. So that's a lot of fun. Um, we also ah. We've also got a couple of uh, Todd Browning movies. You know, Todd Browning, really significant figure in film history, uh, made the film Freaks, what he's most famous for. Mm. But um, before that, we we get a couple of silent era films here uh, that are from the, uh, one from 1920, one from 1923, 1920 is uh, Priscilla Dean in Outside the Law with a new 4K restoration from Universal Pictures and then drifting made three years later along with white tiger uh also stars priscilla dean along with the great anna may wong the original asian superstar in uh, in silent films um you know todd browning really uh, some people like to try to call him like the david lynch of the silent era i don't know if that's quite right but i think he i think it's definitely true that all of the the monster films that defined universal in the 1930s are really the 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 table is sort of set for them by the things that he did in the silent era, and these are these are two terrific Blu-rays. Well, he made a, um, he
1: made a damn good Dracula, Todd. Uh, yeah. With uh, Lon Chaney, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah. uh, I think he made the, I think he made it before he made Freaks. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, the uh, this uh, these uh, there's audio commentaries
0: on here with uh, Anthony's Slide and uh some musical score uh, isolated scores another audio commentary for um, uh, by Brett Wood on white tiger and um, it's really good stuff you know I mean it's uh, it, it's really it's it's a different kind of genre filmmaking than you get out of Germany at about the same time it's not uh, German expressionism it's a it's an American kind of expressionism and uh, it is it is particularly cool and hey. uh, I I just love the fact that there's re, they're rediscovering Priscilla Dean too because she yeah. you know she didn't make it to the, to the sound era she vanished right after sound came in you
1: know you know Todd Everybody. Todd Todd like your dad and like D W was a Kentucky boy
0: yeah yeah we also have uh, there were there were a lot of them came from Kentucky and yeah. Tennessee and thereabouts yeah, yeah. we've also got a couple of Michael Caine films uh, the Icarus File and the Whistleblower. Uh, the Ipcress File is obviously the the most famous one. That's from uh, 1965. Another just great espionage film from the mid 60s, uh, directed by Sidney J. Fury. Audio commentary by Fury and the editor. Uh, another audio commentary with some film historians. An interview with Michael Caine. Uh, as long as we're talking about Sean Connery, you know, pretty much his best friend his whole life. They of mm. course made made The Man Who Would Be King together. Um, so Ipcress File still totally holds up. That's a terrific film. Uh the whistleblower, a little bit less known, but a great, great cast, along oh, with Michael wow, Cain, man. James Fox, Nigel Havers, Felicity Dean, John Gilgood. That's a really, really cool film. Doesn't really have any extras on it, but Gilgood and Kane had just some fantastic scenes together. It's really, really good stuff. This is from 1987. Uh Nigel Havers in the in the aftermath of uh, uh Chariots of Fire. And uh, then we have a whole bunch of really awesome Clint Eastwood films. So this is what Kino has given us from their their Clint Eastwood library. I don't know how they they've racked all these up because I would I thought say how the hell did they wrangle those? Man, it is this is some good stuff. We've got Two Mules for Sister Sarah, directed by Don Siegel, a a frequent uh, collaborator with Clint Eastwood. Perhaps their most famous film together was Dirty Harry. But um, Two Mules for Sister Sarah is a really really sharp western. And uh, it it is, of course, uh, Clint Eastwood along with Shirley MacLaine. And Shirley MacLaine is just wonderful in it. One of the very few actresses who can totally hold her own against Clint when he's chewing the scenery. Um, Beautifully directed, beautifully shot. There's a commentary on here by Alex Cox, who apparently does not make movies anymore. He just does commentaries on movies he loves. And uh, a couple of TV spots and some uh, featurette stuff and radio spots. They also gave us High Plains Drifter, another Uh, great Clint Eastwood Western
1: an uh, uh, underrated Wood western came out not around the time of unforgiven and unforgiven sort of eclipsed it uh this is 73 well you're, yeah no I'm thinking,
0: of, you, I'm thinking of i'm thinking of a pale rider you're thinking of pale rider that's yeah. right yeah high plains drifter which has a lot in common with pale rider actually yeah yeah um high plains drifter is absolutely terrific uh this was made in 1973 has uh, another audio commentary with alex cox it's getting kind of funny these these alex cox commentaries and uh, it's got trailers and interviews with just about everybody involved, um, but still really, really sharp. It's right from that, that perfect area. The Beguiled, mm-hmm. which was more recently remade by Sophia Coppola with uh, Colin Farrell in the, in the lead role about a, uh, a, a, an injured Confederate soldier at this, uh, this girls' school during the yeah. Civil War. Yeah. Um, Clint is just wonderful in it. He's just he's, – this is some of his best stuff as an actor. That's from 1971. Um, it's definitely worth checking out that one if you haven't seen it. Is, is just an absolutely beautiful film. Then we're getting a little bit more into uh, you know he, we've got Play Misty for Me, where Clint is uh, wow. is cutting his teeth as a director. That's also from 1971.
1: I love uh, that because it's such a minimalist film. Uh, it is. I mean, it, it just, you know, it's uh, it's 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 more it has more to do with like a Bob Rafelson film, uh, Five easy, oh, yeah. easy Pieces, or something like that, than the sort of big big films that we would come to know clint as the director of you know and jessica walter is
0: so creepy in this film i yeah. mean he lets her run with the movie that's the beautiful part of it he he lets he lets it be her movie not his movie um that also has uh has a load of extras on it uh donna mills does an interview for this and there's a video essay by Howard s Berger, audio commentary by film historian tim lucas uh lots of other stuff I was so um, nuts about Donna Mills for years. She was on Knots uh, Landing for years. That dog with those big eyes. Dude, do not get me started. Yeah, yeah. That's the only reason any of us watch Knots Landing at that age. <laughs> really? Well, I did mean, Really, it's but much people want to call this back. Who cares? But Donna Mills is on it. I'm yeah. so watching that every week. Every <laughs> week. So watching it. Um and then the Iger Sanction. You remember the Iger Sanction? I don't know that I do. 1975. This was one of the earlier. This is this is Clint trying to sort of be, you know, he's coming out of the um out of the westerns and doing Dirty Harry and uh trying to, you know, sort of forge a more 70s contemporary action film persona. And the Iger Sanction is uh is one of the first of those. It's a spy thriller set in the Swiss Alps. And uh, it's all about a guy who's uh, basically been a hitman his whole life. And he's just kind of trying to try to retire. But then they kill his friend and they drag him back down into it. And George Kennedy is great in this thing. Um, Jack Cassidy is great in it. It's a it's a you know, the whole alpine mountain climbing backdrop is what it's all about. It's really there just to just to, you know, give you a really, really super cool backdrop. Um, but Clint directs it and you can tell that he's, he's, you know, he's really evolving as a director already mid seventies. You can tell it's not just a one shot thing. He's not just doing the actor thing. He's doing the filmmaker thing. And, uh, it's really, really terrific. Really good stuff. Don Siegel's a hell of a teacher. Oh, I'll tell you, he really is. That's true. Is what that was. Um, and then a few others here. Let me just put a dent in the, in the keynote pile. Amazon women on the moon still has a great cult following. Uh, that was that came out in 1987. Uh, John Landis, uh, you know, pre- John Landis presents movie, um, directed by a whole series of directors who all kind of do the, the the vignette thing, including Joe Dante and Carl Gottlieb and Peter Horton and Robert K. Weiss. I mean, there's a trivia question for you:
1: What movie featured Peter Horton? And Joe Dante as co-director, <laughs> Peter Horton, of course. Uh, if you were fans of the series Thirty Something, that's right. In the middle eighties, Peter Horton uh, was one of the one of the. I was a Peter does a lot of work on television, though. Now that I think about it, oh, he does still, yeah, lots, yeah. tons. Yeah. Um, anyway, this is kind
0: of a this is sort of a a, a fictitious kind of a, a mystery science theater satire of the stuff that would show up on television late at night and. Uh, you know, all kinds of other pop culture ephemera from the from the 70s and 80s. Um, I mean, it's a little bit of a Kentucky Fried Movie-ish, you know, mm. there's probably a touch of that, but it has a cult following. It's still quite fun. Uh, there's a little featurette on here about how this thing all came together in an audio commentary with uh, Kat Ellinger and Mike McPadden um, and some outtakes and dailies from Joe Dante's personal archive. Joe Dante went and opened up the trunk for them uh shepherd of the hills is a henry hathaway western with john wayne and harry carey uh betty ford kind of holding down the obligatory uh female part not really spectacular but from 1941 it's john wayne you know kind of emerging into his own and uh, henry hathaway is a great director and i you know if you're if you're a completist you'll probably want to check it out it only has an audio commentary on it um better john wayne film is seven sinners with marlena Tietrich. Because John Wayne always does a better job when he's got somebody of the level of Marlene Dietrich to play off of him. Uh, And this is directed by Tay Garnett and produced by Joe Pasternak. 1940, um, right about the same period. Uh, I would even say this is more of a Marlene Dietrich film than it is a John Wayne film. But it's a great pairing and uh, it it has a great kind of... um, Oh, kind of a kind of a, an exotic cabaret South Seas vibe to it. A lot of great songs in here. Marlena Dietrich sings some like "I've Been in Love Before." You know, there's some great songs. So um, good commentary on
1: that one as well. Yeah, because the, they made a few movies. They did Dietrich and yeah. Wayne. I think yeah. that was the first of three, maybe four movies they did together. Or well, did they make that many? Was it four? I maybe, I maybe it's three, but, but, yeah, but a few, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, we got Richard Pryor and Cicely Tyson and Bustin' Loose. Oh, my God. I remember uh, seeing this
1: movie in the theaters. Right?
0: 1981. It's not really a black exploitation film because it nah. kind of dovetails out of that era, but it still kind of has a toe in it a little bit. You know, so.
1: Lonnie Lonnie Elder. Well, Lonnie Elder, a little, ever so slightly more sophisticated. Lonnie Elder wrote wrote one of the writers anyway, along with Richard on yeah. Roger Simon on that movie. And of course, you got Cicely Tyson in that movie, and she came from a completely sort of different, you know, sounder. And yeah. the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman and and all that that stuff. And this was one of the first ones where where you know, I mean, Richard's doing Richard, but he yeah. got he got the show those dramatic chops that he would show a little bit more of later. Uh, right. in the career as the years went on. He got to show that, that he could actually act when he had to and not just tell a bunch of Now, stuff.
0: Now, I'm going to blow your mind a little bit. Do you know who the executive producer was on this film? I do not know. William Greaves.
1: Oh, get out!
0: <laughs> the, wonderful,
1: <laughs> the wonderful William Greaves. Yes,
0: symbiote psychotaxiplasm William Greaves. Yeah, yeah. He was executive producer on that film. I don't know what that story is. I can't imagine um i have not listened to the audio there's an audio commentary on here which i didn't listen to they might get into it but still that must be quite a story yeah wow yeah right did not Um, that. crazy also got a phil juano film the veil uh from 2016 with jessica alba and thomas jane uh i i had no idea phil juano was still making movies clearly he is i'm glad he is it's got some style to it. Uh, I'd like to see him go a little bit more mainstream again, you know. But but he's still hanging in there. He was the Wunderkind out of USC for a minute and a half. Uh, yeah. when he made three o'clock high, and then just kind of disappeared after Rattle and Hum, the YouTube documentary. Uh, but uh, he's still making movies, and uh, this is probably you know it, it's a it's basically a horror film with style. Um, not a huge budget, but Thomas Jane is good. Jessica Alba is good. And, uh, you know, uh, it does make you wish that Phil Juano could direct some bigger budget films again. Wouldn't be bad to stick him into a, into a
1: Marvel movie, to be honest. A rap on Phil was always, you know, you could see all that Hitchcock in there. Yeah. You know, this little, like Hitchcock through to Palma through, you know, it's like, uh, um, yeah. you can, you know, yeah. you can just see it all. And then we have got a couple of old Michael J. Fox films that uh,
0: that I'm particularly fond of. One I'm really fond of, and nobody else is. And you're going to lambast me here in a moment. But the first I'm going to make mention is 1987's "The Secret of My Success." No, brother, that's me and you
1: again. Yeah, right. Yep. Um, I
0: love it. Yeah, that's a, that's a Ray Stark film, uh, and it's just it's it's Michael J. Fox exploiting his his uh, his superstardom at that moment in the 1980s. You know, obviously he has the Back to the Future films and. Uh, the you know the TV show uh, Family Ties and and here he's just basically be you know they they find these scripts for him where he gets to do the shtick that that he's always done where here he's you know a guy who's trying to climb the corporate ladder and um it's it's you know got a great performance by Fred Gwynn in it it's a it's a it's a sweet little film directed by Herbert Ross who of course did uh, Funny Lady the sequel to Funny Girl all the way up to stuff like Footloose and uh, yeah and and the Turning Point you know one of the legendary Oscar non-winners but it's got all, It's got a great musical uh, score of songs. Uh, Helen Slater is, Helen is just terrific. Helen Slater. So divine in it. And Richard Jordan and uh, Michael J. Fox is charming. But I'm going to go out here now. You're going to lambast me. I know you are. Yeah. I wrote an, a review for Entertainment Today that might be <laughs> the only good review ever published for Michael J. Fox and James Woods in the hard way.
1: Yeah, see? That's another one that I thought was a lot of fun. <laughs> Oh, thank goodness! We're on the same page. I'm sorry, man. I think I think that might be LL Cool J's first or second film. He plays one of the cops. Yeah, uh, uh, might it, be. Yeah, yeah, it might have been his first or second film, and yeah, kind of, kind of, kind of dug that movie. Well, here's the thing. It was directed by John Badham, who, of yeah. course,
0: is a total workmanlike hack, right? I mean, John Badham, who had done, you know, War Games and Blue Thunder in the same season, and who, of course, gave us, you know, Saturday Night Fever, and we could go on and on and on. Great John Badham films, you know, Frank Langella and Dracula. John, you know, Badham is the guy that I think uh, I think Ray often quotes him as, as a quote saying where he said. Um,
1: if anybody tries to call me an artist, I'll kick them in the ass. <laughs> John Mary John Wa- warriors. Uh, yeah. Get out of here, you know. Uh, but well, this, I, was, this this film was I, I, most death re- was in this movie. It, it look it, it written by Dan Pine,
0: who was a teacher, uh, not of mine, but of some other classmates at UCLA, and Len Dobbs, who's been around
1: forever. Yeah.
0: Uh, so here's the story that the story is basically Michael J. Fox is going to play a cop. So he to research his part. He becomes the the partner of a reluctant real cop played by uh, James Woods, who can't stand it. It's a buddy buddy movie with two guys who just do not get along. And of course, you know, formulaic movies of the wow. '80s. You know where this goes. Uh, Michael J. Fox always getting on his nerves. But here's the thing: there's a scene in here which riffs off of something that is rather well known in Hollywood, where, uh, and I'll only I'll only put it this way: <laughs> where they're they're in the urinal. And James Woods is doing what he's doing. And Michael J. Fox is trying to imitate his urinal body language, (laughs) right? He's trying to, he's that method, right? He's trying to really, really get into it, into the way the whole thing works in the urinal. And he sneaks a peek and recoils. (laughs) And if if you know any of the Hollywood rumors, in that moment, Uh I remember the press screening, the entire auditorium lost their minds. And you can even see James Woods crack a smile because he knows that this is just, it's, it's an inside joke. It's not even that inside. And it's, it's a lot of fun. So I really enjoy this movie. It's got an audio commentary with Batam and Rob Cohen, who was his producer and second unit director, of course, is a director in his own right, started the Fast and the Furious franchise. Uh, Along with uh, Dan Kramer, who's a film historian. It's a really, really good audio commentary. Yeah. And then, uh, three more real quickly here before, uh, uh, we, we jump into some, uh, some other stuff is, um, oh, actually, you know what? Let me do, let me do, let me do these. I want to do a trio of films here. Uh, and we can get back to some of the others later. I want to do this trio Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, Son of Alibaba, and Arabian Nights. Cause they're all tied together. Uh, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Is of course from 1944, Son of Alibaba has a great cast. Tony Curtis being all yeah. all hunky and, and Tony uh, and Piper Laurie. That is from 1952, and then uh, tucked right in between the two of the, actually earlier than uh, earlier than Alibaba, I thought it was between the two. Is uh, Walter Wanger's Arabian Nights with uh, Sabu and Maria Montez um terrific i mean look hollywood doing doing exotic arabian middle eastern stuff at, at that point in time is rather silly it's quite funny at times but it's very much of the period and these are really fun films uh philip uh barry or philip pub does the audio commentary on two of them on uh, arabian nights and alibaba and the 40 thieves and then uh lee gambin does the audio commentary for a uh, son of alibaba the um I did not watch Arabian Nights that I did not have time to get around to, but uh, I did get around to Son of Alibaba, which uh, because I'm a big Tony Curtis fan, just to see how it holds up. I've not seen this in ages. And I got to say, it's really, really fun. I mean, Tony (laughs) Curtis, Tony Curtis has a gift and he always had a gift. And his gift was he knew exactly what the tenor of the movie was. If everybody else around him thought the movie was going to be serious and in his heart of hearts, he knew that this was a silly movie. He would tone accordingly and Mm. the movie would benefit if it was really intense and a real serious film, he would go there. He always knew how to modulate his performance to what the tone of the film needed to be, even if nobody else around him understood it. So he's one of the few people that really, really gets the tone of this film. And um, he has a great time with it. It's uh, directed by Kurt Newman, who of course did a lot of, you know, uh, genre films at the time, stuff like Tarzan and the Amazons. Uh, Piper Laurie is just gorgeous and wonderful and um alibaba and the and the 40 thieves um is worth watching just because it has the wonderful maria montez in it and she's just always fantastic and divine um who was also in arabian nights so uh you know those are those are classic
1: hollywood movies of the era tim what else do we got we diddle around with a few new movies uh let's do it so to speak um uh bill and ted face the music i know you talked about this one on the radio yeah. Uh, uh, when it came out, I gotta tell you, I was charmed by it. But you know, uh, I, I think, I think, I think uh, we had, we had, we had, we had come out to L.A. for whatever in like 1980, 88, 89. It was, but whenever they were literally shooting the original Bill and Ted movie, right? Yeah. Which I guess came out in eighty nine, so it must have been like like eighty eight or something like that. And we're in Westwood, yeah. and uh, and you know, it was our first time seeing a big old movie set, and, and you know, all the trucks and all that, you know, all that stuff you know and i and they're shooting they're shooting Bill and Ted and i see this kid and i see this other kid and i and I, we, they do this scene and i lean over my wife and say you see that kid there with the dark hair he's not going to make it <laughs> 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 he ain't got it <laughs> how wrong could i have possibly been yeah. now, I, i've always enjoyed these bill and ted movies um in the same way that some people like the dumb and dumber movies it's a, It's fascinating to me that the franchise has, you know, lasted three movies and you know stretched out over uh, thirty years. And, and this yeah. one, they both have these daughters. Their daughters are more or less them, <laughs> only uh, you it, know. It, I. That's the one thing that I
0: kind of enjoyed. It's it's awfully tough to to keep this this whole shtick going. That you know the perfect song and the wacky time traveling and it it's just it's not really a plot movie. It's all it's a gimmick movie. It's the one liners and the you know. The, the The zippy stuff that they do in the in the characters, and the fact that they're too old for these parts now really makes it tough to get into it except for the part that the girls are really good those two girls do a
1: fantastic job doing a, basically an impression of bill and ted doing the b- impressions of bill and yeah. ted from 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 30 years ago and i thought it was yeah. really really funny and they sort of acknowledge it all they sort of acknowledge how old yeah. they are <laughs> and, and and uh you know so I'll, I'll, some of that is kind of fun anything on that by the way i imagine that they, they, they
0: yeah no, uh yeah there's a few things there's a um the panel that they did at Comic-Con and then uh, behind the scenes featurette and you know a couple other little kind of kind of behind the scene featurette things um, but you know, it's enough. I mean, any more than that would have been overkill, I think. Uh,
1: so you know, I guess if you if you love the movies previously, you'll probably be fine with that one. You can just sort of like fill out the uh, fill out the collection there. Spontaneous is the movie that I got a chance to talk about on the radio. It's, a, it's sort of a, a a dark a dark comedy uh, that's that, that's I, I, I think anyway, alluding to some of the things that are going on in society now. Basically, the notion inside this little movie is this. Um, spontaneous explosion, not combustion, where people burst into a ball of flame and leave nothing but ashes, but spontaneous explosion is what's happening to a group of children, high school kids uh, of a certain age in this small town. Uh, they, they They just, for no reason whatsoever, just blow the hell up. Uh, it, it, uh, it it happens the very first time in the movie, and uh, at at the top of the movie, and it keeps happening throughout the movie. And there's a whole thing that's going on. And it's it's sort of interesting. If fortunately this is a comedy, so as sticky and icky and uh, disturbing as this all sort of is. It it plays out in the context of this sort of comedy. Uh, and um, I I rather I rather enjoyed it. I think it, I think it was uh, it streamed perhaps on Amazon Prime or something like that. Uh, Brian Duffield film Piper Perabo in the movie, Charlie Plummer, uh, and and a wonderful performance by young Miss Catherine Langford, from whom uh, the story's point uh, the point of view the sto- the entire movie the entire story is kind of told kind of dug that movie uh, quite a lot. Uh, wicked little idea for a, for a uh, for a horror movie, sort of a contemporary horror movie in the vein of what Jordan Peele has been doing with his work in the horror genre, Us and Get Out, Antebellum. Um. So, uh, a successful, uh, 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 young black woman finds herself transported to and trapped in the in the in the antebellum South, the pre Civil War South, uh, and and she has to figure out how she's going to negotiate and deal with all of that. You know, there's some real that 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 in and of itself is actually a pretty good idea. Not- it's a, it. Yeah, go ahead. But, I am where you're not, going. Not, well, it, well, yeah, you do know where I'm going. The, the, yeah. their, their execution of it and their sort of understanding. Well, yeah. not they did not go the way that the that the film's uh, um, narrative suggested that they that they might have. Janelle Monae, by the way, starring in the movie. Janelle Monae. Janelle Monae is is absolutely terrific. The two guys who
0: directed it, who who come from commercials, you can <coughs> excuse me, you can kind of tell that they come from commercials because. They don't shape the film quite correctly. It's mm. not, it's not paced and shaped terribly well. It, it's a, it, and the structure of it, it tries to be a little bit. It, it sort of tries to sit somewhere between Jordan Peele and M Night Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's. I would say it's not enough Jordan Peele, and it's maybe too much Shyamalan. You know. Yeah. Right. It it it's it's a little too concerned with cutting out of scenes and back into other scenes in a very manipulative way to prevent you from figuring out what's going on. And by doing that, it's a lady does protest too much thing. You actually do start to figure out what's going on.
1: Yeah, and, and it called
0: attention it is, to itself.
1: It didn't need all of that because you know what? If this is a ho- this the, the, this scenario is a horror movie all by itself. This movie can be about yeah. what of of, of of exactly what it looks like it's about. You don't yeah. have to make it about anything more than what it looks like it's about. I promise you. If you if you drop me, <laughs> and, and, and for whatever reason, I don't yeah. and, and because it won't matter what the reason is. Uh, uh, so anyway. Uh, that, yeah, but nevertheless, but, an inter- a hell of a concept.
0: Yeah, it, Bush and Wren's. By the way, that's the that's the team. The director. yeah, Gerard, team, G- Bush Gerard, Gerard Bush and not the other guy. Yeah, they're they're they're. I mean, they're great. Their commercials are great, and their movies may well up, end up being great too if they just learn to kind of segue out of that commercial mindset and into the film mindset. But I will say this: Janelle Monae is terrific in it. You know, yeah. she's she really came on strong in in in, in um uh the uh, the the space thing oh uh uh, Come uh, on. uh numbers figures. oh hidden figures hidden, hidden figures. figures thank you very much you know she came on strong in that we we you know kind of one of the one of the few recording artists who kind of has been able to show that she has chops on the uh on the film side as well and uh you know i look forward to what she does in the future well, I think real, she's really, really
1: good. real strong performance in that uh that movie about harriet tubbin tubbin yeah, uh, yeah. harriet i should say harriet uh, uh uh and actually a uh, uh, really, really good and and I think it was I think it's a series called The Loop, the second incarnation yeah. of a series called the Loop. Not bad at all. Uh um um Susan Sarandon film, uh don't don't get enough Susan Sarandon Blackbird. films. Blackbird uh, but you know, yeah, and right you know, directed by Roger Michel. Um uh a lovely film, remake of a Danish film, if I'm not mistaken. Um uh and, and, you know a lovely, deeply moving film, a terminally old uh, mother arranges, you know, to, to bring the whole family back. One of those sort of things and Susan Saranda is just absolutely exquisite in this movie reminiscent of um uh, her and Julia Roberts some years ago yeah um um it, uh, yeah i mean it's i i i think the film is
0: is good enough i wish it had been better I, i'm very you know movies like this seem they just and it's probably not fair to it but it just feels like it belongs to a different era like it belongs to the 1980s or the early 1990s because there's so many stars in this you know it's susan saran and kate winslet and yeah. Lindsay lindsey duncan and rain wilson and sam neal and you know then you get uh, mia wasikowska and it, you're like oh my goodness there's so many stars in this thing and everybody's competing with everybody else and i mean yes it's it's a bunch of people gathered on this little rural part of new england uh, right close to the ocean, because mom is, you know, Sam Neill's dad, Susan Sarandon's mom. She's dying. She wants to go out, you know, on her terms, so it's a euthanasia thing. She's brought the whole family together. And, of course, all the all the baggage gets aired and all the dirty laundry. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, it's Susan Sarandon basically getting to do some, a Susan Sarandon part, you know, and it's it's good. Roger Michelle is a good director, so, I mean, I, I got nothing to complain about it and the fact that it feels a
1: little dated to me. Did it come with anything?
0: No, nope, not really. Uh, uh, it's it's one of those bare bones deals, but uh, you know it's there. It's on Blu-ray. and It looks good. The Curse of Audrey Earnshaw. Uh, some of these horror things coming out now uh, after Halloween. I love the tagline on this. There's a new witch in town.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, that, that
1: that 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 Thomas Lee movie. Oh, Thomas, Thomas Robert new- Lee. He he's the guy that wrote wrote that. Uh, oh directed, di- oh, filmed. did he? Yeah. Okay. I well, saw, I saw that one for the show.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's funnier than I think it means to be. Uh, Maybe it maybe it means to be funny. Uh, Anyway, it's, uh, this is all about this plague that uh, blows through this, uh, this small religious community. And uh, the woman and her daughter are the only ones who aren't who don't succumb to it. Yeah. And for reasons, obviously, because you know, are they have they made a pact with the devil? Are they witches? What? They're
1: witches. They yeah, are. Yeah, they're witches. Yeah,
0: I mean, uh, you know, it. I mean, it's creepy. It's mostly designed to have just enough scare moments for you to not think too hard about how the plot doesn't really make any sense. But it, it's on Blu-ray. It's got some good scares to it, and it's from Epic. And uh, you know, fans of the genre won't find anything to
1: dislike. You know, Don Don. What I like, Don McKellar's in that movie, and Don McKellar yeah. wrote the uh, wrote the uh, Red Violin. That's right, uh, uh, he's an actor who you've seen canadian of, Canadian actor, but he wrote the red violin That's yeah like he also he also wrote and directed a movie
0: called Last Night about the last Night on Earth before the Earth ends
1: oh yeah, and you remember, remember that, that. yeah, and
0: I think Sandra O oh might be in that as well, and uh terrific little Canadian indie. you never learn why the earth is going to end it's just about the impact of of knowing the end of your life, the impact of mortality dawning on all these people and and you know how you're gonna go out. What's your last relationship and your last words gonna be?
1: It's a good little film. Don McKellar is a sharp dude. Mm. Uh, Fatima, um, uh, a retelling oh, of, yes. of, of, of a story. A film. I think it's the story's been made into a film a few times. And uh, years, uh, 1917 or something like that. It was in Portugal, Fatima, Portugal. Yep. Uh, uh, three young. Three young people uh, believed uh, that uh, they had been visited by the Virgin Mary, uh, and uh, the church came in to investigate it. It was it was actually it was actually dubbed eventually after many years to in fact be a uh, have been a sort of divine event, and um, uh, and uh, folks have been telling stories about it ever since. This was a lovely movie, uh, this particular one uh, that came out earlier this year uh, before things sort of went south. Beautifully shot and made. Uh, uh, uh Marco Ponta de corvio I think Ponte-
0: it's gonna Marco Marco Pontecorvo who is the son of Gilo Pontecorvo, the long time director of the uh Venice Film Festival and most famous for directing the Battle of Algiers
1: Ah oh, yeah,
0: so it's the younger Pontecorvo who did this it's uh he's not you know he's not his dad let's be honest <laughs> <Let's> be honest <laughs> this is not this is not the Battle of Algiers, but you know the 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 event itself is most famous for how it climaxes with a with a kind of a, a a solar event that a lot of people interpreted as being a divine event. And uh, a lot of people have struggled for years to explain exactly what happened and how and why. And, you know, the, the movie just assumes that it it is what everyone claimed it was, which Mm. was a divine manifestation, but no, it's a nice old fashioned, colorful um, melodrama. And it's very sweet. And uh, it is noteworthy. I would add too, for being the first release from the rebooted Picture House, you know, oh, Picture House, Picture House was a big indie distributor for a while there in the in the 90s, and then it got shut down and folded in. I think with Warner Brothers when Bob Bernie went to uh, to Warner Brothers and got involved with Warner Independent, and Bob Bernie since was in you know he was a director of distribution over at uh, Amazon Studios, and he has now rebooted Picture House with his wife, and they're on the map again as a, as an independent distributor. So unfortunately, the pandemic hit. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it's, it, once the pandemic is gone, we'll probably see more really good stuff coming out of Picture House.
1: That would be great, man. Yeah. Uh, the actor, uh, or whom we generally speak, uh, know as a, the, the actor, Peter Francinelli directed this little movie called The Vanished, uh, with Anne Hayes and Thomas Jane and Jason Patrick and, uh, all folks, uh, uh, that he probably knows and has worked with before. It's a neat little movie, uh, about a couple, uh, whose child went, uh, disappeared on a camping trip. Uh, uh Thomas Jane and Anne Hathaway uh and it's a, it's a, it's a, Peter wrote the movie it's the original idea original content uh, i don't know if it's if it's his directing debut but it's a, it's a fairly tight uh, little movie uh that he made sort of action mystery thriller um uh and um uh, you know uh, i thoroughly enjoyed it did it come with anything man
0: It uh, has absolutely nothing on it whatsoever, other than a digital copy, digital, you know, you can add the digital library to your, uh, the digital
1: movie to the library, but uh, otherwise, nope, got nothing. No extras. Anyway, good work from Peter, I will say. Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president. This is from the little documentary section. I had to pull this up specifically, because I had a chance to talk about it on the radio too. Uh, So Jimmy Carter, uh, first election, 1976. Uh, So, you know, I I didn't get a chance to vote for Jimmy in 1976, because I was only 15 years old. <laughs> but I was very much into politics at the time and followed that election quite closely. He, of course, running against Gerald Ford, who had, of course, become president after the whole thing that went down with the other guy, uh, uh, Richard Nixon. <laughs> and, and, and he had this guy that's this peanut farmer from Georgia. And uh, running on the Democratic ticket. And it was, it was all sort of amazing at that time uh, that Jimmy Carter, uh, this peanut farmer from Georgia, uh, was, was running as a sort of progressive uh, liberal president. All of these rock and rollers, and they weren't just rock and rollers, but all kinds of people from the music industry, came out in support of Jimmy Carter. Uh and I mean it was the Cassius, uh and you had uh 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 you had you had you had Dizzy Gillespie, you had uh you had Jimmy Buffett, uh uh you had you had Bob Dylan, you had the Gatlin brothers, uh, uh Willie Nelson. Were all these that was oh. the first time that ever happened. That, yeah. that kind of, we, I mean, we, it, we're accustomed to it now.
2: Yeah, sure.
0: But that had never happened before. Yeah,
1: yeah, and, and it yeah. was an interesting group of people because a lot of them were folks from you know country music who you might have thought would have been a little bit more. But now uh, they were all big uh, supporters of the progressive uh, Jimmy Carter. And it was just uh, this is a really really neat movie. At the end of the day, uh, you have all that that great music and all, all those wonderful testimonials in there. But what's really great about this movie is that Jimmy Carter is in it all 95 years of him. Uh, uh, and he's it's sitting, amazing. Just amazing. So he's, and he's still, it's amazing he's made it that long. Just sharp as a tack, and he's talking about, about that period and, uh, and, and what was going on and, and, uh, and how he had to deal with some things. Again, we're talking about 1975 mostly uh, here, and uh, it's, just, uh, it's just a really, really neat movie, uh, sort of time capsule of the period as much as anything. But yeah, a hell, hell of a lot of really great rock and roll music in there too.
0: So we got Friendsgiving for uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, Friendsgiving is a completely wacky movie from written and directed by Nicole Payone, um, whom, with whom I am not familiar. But it's 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 mainly about the actresses. It's it's assembling a very very eclectic group of actresses. And a completely bonkers movie. Um, like like at one point, uh, uh, Fortune Feimster, Wanda Sykes, and Margaret Show show up as these fairy gay mothers. Um, and, and you can guess what the film is like for the rest of it. I mean, it's just, it's just wacky. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, about Thanksgiving that basically goes incredibly wrong and all the people who, who, you know, populate it. And that's usually what these kind of Thanksgiving movies are. And of course you wind up learning your lessons about life and love and family and you know, how how to, what you really are thankful for. It's got that tag on it, but um, yeah, in addition to Margaret Cho and Wanda Sykes and Fortune and Feimster is Malin Ackerman and Kat Dennings and, uh, Jane Seymour is in it, Jack Donnelly, Dion Cole, uh, Asha Tyler. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a pretty monstrous cast of names. Somebody pulled in a lot of favors. The, the one thing that I do find funny about it and that they know is very tongue in cheek is that they plug it as from a producer of Zoolander and Tropic Thunder. <laughs> Just one, just one from a producer of. I think that's, I that's that's kind of
1: that's kind of cute. It's sort of owning up to the the cheesiness of that that possessory credit. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Uh, the Times of Bill Cunningham. I, this was uh, this was a great uh, doc um, um, that I also got a chance to talk about on the radio. Um, uh, so Bill Cunningham was a fashion uh, photographer for the for the New York Times. This was Oscar nominated too. Uh, yeah, and he he's just a wonderful character uh, for, who for years and years and years was a fashion photographer for the New York Times. He rode around New York on his bicycle, not only taking, and he was very, very well-known, of course, for his fashion photography, but he also took pictures of people on the street. He, he was a, a, a very astute and well-known street photographer as well, uh, very often incorporating the fashion that people would wear on the streets of New York. Uh, yeah. as a part of and people would and the designers would pick up on what Bill was shooting people wearing out on the street and not long after that very often you would see uh, the fashion of people on the street work its way into the whole uh, couture uh, of the fashion designers. So anyway this is just a wonderful uh, film that follows him around for, for years and years and uh, in, in years and, and, uh, and he, has this, he has this whole bizarre little living condition he uh that, that that he lived in uh, basically he lived in his studio um uh, and uh, this is just a really really neat documentary uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker narrates a good chunk of it um uh and um a, a lot of the most important folks of the new york fashion scene also
0: got a movie called Alone which is a pandemic movie it 's a zombie pandemic movie
1: um
0: and uh it's it's i mean it's fine uh Tyler Posey uh plays this guy this surfer who wakes up one morning and finds that uh, the the whole world a pandemic has turned the world into you know stalking zombies and uh then Summer Spiro from Westworld plays his neighbor in his apartment complex and um th- it's it's sort of uh now about how does he cuz they're separated how does he rescue her under the zombie condition so it's one of those zombie movies that figures out how to be uh, effectively a, a one location, very small location contained movie. Um, and Donald Sutherland also shows up because somebody has got to, you know, you got to have somebody with a name in this thing and he kind of steals the movie from them. But, it's, for what it is, for this particular genre, it is fine. It is um, on the upper end, kind of the lower end of the top tier, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, another movie that kind of goes in the same vein, lower end of the top tier, is the uh, Pauly Shore movie, Guest House. Oh. Pauly Shore is more entertaining now than he was when he was actually playing Pauly Shore. I just want to say that he can do characters now. He's old enough that he doesn't have to do the thing.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah, the, the the Weasel, for years and years in the early 90s, when I was a junket guy, I would, every yeah. one of those movies. I From know. From the, 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 the Jury, the, all, yep. all these movies. biodome, every single one of them, Pauly Shore.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, you know, this is basically just one of those dumb kind of 90, early 90s-type comedies uh About this couple that uh that buy their dream home, unfortunately there's this crazy dude in the guest house who will not move out now that they've bought the house. The crazy dude Polly Shore. So both of these movies alone and guest house are from grindstone grindstone who you know makes a lot of these movies and then releases them through Lionsgate we've often talked about the fact that grindstone mostly makes movies that are action films with Bruce Willis or or Robert De Niro or else they make movies about talking animals it's one of the two oddly enough neither of these fit that uh, alone is a, is a zombie horror film and uh, guest house is is a comedy but not a talking animal movie unless you consider Polly Shore an animal so uh, but anyway anyway no, it's you know what it's got. It's got a real sweet sense to it, and it's it's perfectly fine for what it is. And then uh, I want to make quick mention here also of a uh, a Shap Factory G Kids animated film called Morona's Fantastic Tale by Anka Damien, ah, which is just such great animation. I mean, it's so cool. Anka Damien has a really really cool kind of avant garde, surreal, pastelly uh, uh, sensibility to her. Um and uh it, it it's just it takes you away in a really cool way. I haven't seen an animated film that quite took me this way since I would almost say Yellow Submarine, to be honest. <laughs> oh, really? It kinda of, yeah, it's sort of it sort of it takes you it takes you on a journey in that same way. It's very, very aggressive and and stylistic and surreal. And um it's wonderful because the idea it centers around uh the, the Morona is a dog. It's a little stray little dog. And it's all about her um, her journey through people and different owners and, you know, uh, learning about life, learning about human beings. It's it's really a beautiful film. And uh, again, it's called Marona's Fantastic Tale, M-A-R-O-N-A. Definitely check it out. It's a Blu-ray and DVD uh, combo set from Shout Factory and
1: G-Kids. Perfectly lovely. Perfectly lovely. Uh, I was thinking of moving to, over to a little bit of television because I've yeah I've, I've let's checked, do it. I've checked out some of these series uh so we have uh season two of Charmed. so back in the uh, i guess it would be the middle to late nineties, I was a big fan of the charmed series uh which starred shannon Doherty and um, um oh uh, who else uh, a few a few different um folks over the course of the years that it was on and then that sort of went away and then a couple of couple of seasons ago two seasons ago, Charmed reappeared. And it's all set in a sort of set in a sort of uh, the exact same context. These three sisters who are the Charmed Ones and all of that, um, but they're sort of like a Black and Latin X family. And 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 I thought to myself, mm, that's an interesting thing to do, you know. Uh, but more other than that, it's it's almost exactly the same as the charm series that I thoroughly enjoyed uh, uh, back in the back in the nineties. Uh, it's uh, ridiculously sort of uh, romantic and silly. Uh, with these three blazingly hot young women, uh, who are witches and, uh, have to save the, have to save the universe and everything else from everything else. This is season two. Uh, and I, I'm telling you, I hope they're shooting some more of these. I can't wait for it to come back on. I've been a, always, it's nuts to me that 25 years later, I'm still a fan of charms, but then again, yeah, you know, I've always been a sucker for those kind of, for those and- kind of series
0: and that and that is from c b s and paramount uh probably want to make mention of a few other c b s paramount things here uh since you cracked that open there's nancy drew season one big fan which, of that one too which which i think is is cool- i mean I remember the you know the original pamela sue anderson uh nancy drew from you know 80s. back in the back in the eighties mm-hmm. good grief, but I think they've done a good job of re kind of reinventing it um this is not this is not bad at all uh dynasty the new reboot of dynasty yeah. is in season three i i i don't think this really works at all but
1: clearly it works enough for some people to have made it to a season three i always um, wonder you know, who, because again dynasty is serious that you and i i at least you know back during the days of dallas and falcon crest yeah. and flamingo road this is this is all early 80s well, stuff. who is that meant for
0: I, I, you know what? I, here's part of the problem. I think that when they, you know, they recently rebooted Dallas as well. Until Larry Hagman died, and then they had no no way to sustain it. But I think Empire, which of course is a riff on all of that, yeah, it, it, that sort of got them all thinking. Oh, well, if if people are ready for Empire, if Empire works, if they're ready to go there again, let's reboot everything. And I think they missed what Empire was doing, which was that Empire. Had refashioned it; it had kind of moved it to the next step. So mm-hmm. you can't really go backwards. Um, but that, you know, that said, I mean, clearly somebody's watching it. Uh, we also have the, uh, you know, you can get the entire Bonanza thing in a box set, but we've also got uh, the individual release now of the eleventh vol- uh, season of Bonanza in volume one and two. So I mean, but you can get all of Bonanza out there right now. I'm, I'm uh, it's, it's not. Uh, You know how much bonanza can you take, Tim?
1: (laughs) I actually all of it, but not all at once. Yeah, I see hit of the class here, man. Yeah, head of the class. I was such a big fan of this sitcom. Again, I think we're talking about the middle eighties, head, head of the class, Howard Hesman, uh, coming off a uh, 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 oh, what was uh, WKRP in Cincinnati? Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, and all that stuff. And before and and again, Billy Connolly, who we would, talked about earlier, would go on to take over the him. show. Yeah, yeah. So is this, so is this the Billy Connolly years or is this no?
0: The, this is still Howard Hesman, season, season season two. Okay, season two, still doing, uh, still doing. I, I mean, you know, shedding Johnny Fever and being able to do this, uh, you gotta give him props. That was not easy because I still think of him as Johnny Fever. <laughs> and I I and I just watched the pilot for WKRP again recently, and I not not to be a little ahead of the class, but do you remember how the pilot for uh WKRP ends? Uh not the pilot, it, no. It, it 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 ends where uh Andy, played by Gary Sandy, mm-hmm uh well it's not even the end it's it's it, it's it's when they do the official change but it's the, it's the scene where he brings in the 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 pop music disc the rock and roll mm-hmm. and he tells johnny you know you can do this again and he's been playing like you know church music and all this stuff he's beaten he's beaten down and he's and 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 leaves and it's this great moment it's a fantastic acting moment it's where you see howard hessman at his best and here he is a broken old broken down old you know hippie drug using guy sitting there he's just he's half asleep and he and he and he looks at that vinyl record, and you can tell he relives his entire life in that moment like he's reborn, and he puts it down and he br- takes a breath and he's kind of not sure if he's going to be able to do this. <gasps> And then he grabs the needle on whatever music is currently playing and he pushes it right across yeah. the music. <laughs> All right, babies, you got the fever and this is Johnny fever and he lets it go and he just, and he's, and he's reborn. It is such an amazing, it's one of the great moments in television history nah. because it's one actor taking you through a complete process in his head. It's just a beautiful thing. I just, anyway, so I've totally derailed Head of the Class. But yes, Head of the Class season two, that actor is still
1: really good, Howard Hessman. Hey, hey, Head of the Class gave us Robin Givens. Yeah. Uh, Brian Robbins has went on to become quite a director for, uh, for a long, long time. And eventually Billy Connolly would take over that show, and it was just as funny. Yep, it was. It definitely was.
0: Uh, New Amsterdam season two. Uh, have you watched much of this? The Doctor Show, right? Yeah, it's a medical show. Any good? It's not. It, it's okay, you know. I mean, it doesn't really transcend anything. It's it's kind of trying to do. It's it's trying to walk a line between all the other doctor shows, like ER went here and Grey's Anatomy went here, and it's sort of trying to find a path between all of that, and mm. it kind of still stumbles into things that those shows did. But it's it's fine. I mean, it's it's a cool cast. It's it's um. It it it, it kind of for the most part works because the whole premise is about being a single dad. You know, there's a domestic angle to. To the whole thing, this guy, his wife has died. Uh, Ryan Eggold plays the the lead part, Max Goodwin, um, and and you know he's kind of trying to juggle work and life. And so there's a, it's a little bit like it dips into um, courtship of Eddie's father uh, in some way too. It's fine. It's it's pretty it's pretty good. Um, and then there's also Men with a Plan oh, season yeah. three. I had seen none of this. Uh, Matt LeBlanc trying to you know find his way with a with a new uh, a new thing a new show too. Uh, he's never going to recapture the, the the beauty of cheer, of, uh, of Friends, but um, this isn't bad. It's not bad. I mean, they they surround him with a pretty good uh, pretty good cast: Kevin Nealon and uh, Stacey Keach. Well, uh, Cl- you know, it's a Cl- classic network sitcom, man. Classic. It's kind of a classic network sitcom. That's exactly what it is. Yeah.
1: Let's see what else we got. Oh, um oh, you know what? I'm looking at I just I just saw I just saw our cartoon president what that's supposed yeah. to talk about. Now, this, so this is this is this is season 2. The thing that I will say about it, I didn't watch it a lot. But but you know, and and I get it, it was also like it was meant to be sort of pointed at at uh, at uh, President Trump, but I got to tell you, they made fun of everybody. Oh, everybody. No, it's it's a straight up satire of everybody. It's, 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 every, it's, everybody. Sure. It's, it's a kind of yeah. I mean they can they can keep making this. Uh, well, after January, <laughs> and and just and just keep well, on rolling with it. No reason to change anything. They they could make this for the next twenty years. Yeah, no matter who's elected. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's
0: the beauty of it is that it, it does. They could they, even if it doesn't even focus on the president anymore. It could focus on anyone in the political process. You could keep this show going forever because it's it it, it all. It really needs. Is a steady flow of ridiculous politicians to make fun of. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. we're never going to run out of that.
1: Yeah, and nobody. You're never going to run out of that. Nobody gets nobody gets love. I know that people would think that it, that's what it's about. Not so much. Yeah. Black no. Lightning seasons one and well, no, seasons two and three. I believe is what you got there. Yeah. Uh, black Lightning, yeah. Not not the biggest fan of the Black Lightning series. There's some things that I like about it. It's a little bit it's, it's a little bit like watching a black exploitation film condensed or broken apart into a into a television series. I agree, and I'm yeah. not, and I'm, not, I'm not sure that I want to do that. I, I, I think I would rather if they had gone the way of say like a Daredevil or a Jessica Jones, which were you know the, the, this this is CW, that's Netflix, so you're know, completely different sort of the, styles to begin with.
0: You know, the way it ties in with the Arrowverse is rather clumsy, I have to say. It, it's not as elegant as what they've done, you know, between Arrow and Flash and Supergirl. that That's kind of the one that ties together the most organically. Mm. Um, but what I do like about this, oddly enough, I think Black Lightning is the least interesting character on here. His daughters are the yeah, best. It's really interesting, you know, right? Yeah. Thunder and Lightning. Thunder and Lightning really are the characters that you watch this for. He's okay, he's fine, but the girls really make it. My daughter loves Thunder and Lightning. Yeah. Like, she loves Thunder. She, could, she couldn't give a damn it. Black Lightning <laughs> took a vacation and left the show to his, his daughters. Forget it. But Thunder and Lightning are super cool, you know? And so I think they might want to think about spinning that off at some point. Oh, it's almost certainly going to happen. Uh, that would that would be a, a good move, I think. I think that'd be definitely a good move. Um, we also have. Have you seen? Uh, is it Nos 4A2 or I, Nos Four Eight Two?
1: I did. I did. I, I don't know how you say it either, but I did see season one. This is season two.
0: Yeah. I, 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 AMC show. It's a yeah. va- it's a vampire show. Yeah. With Zachary Quint- Quinto.
1: Yeah, and it's 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 sort of co- it's sort of it's sort of complicated. It's very psychological uh um, and the one that i the, the season that i watched was all set during during christmas uh and uh, and and, it, it, and with that big creepy car yeah uh, uh, and uh and, and and it was it was sort of move back and forth in time but it was hey, it was pretty good the, uh, season 2 i haven't gotten a hold of yet
0: i didn't i i watched uh, some of some of the episodes on here just to get a taste of it and then i watched the extras including a panel that they had at comic con which is very very interesting so there's a uh what's what is interesting here is that there's a like you say, it's very psychological. There's a lot of forethought that goes into this show. And uh, and it's really quite um, – it, it, it really does try to reinvent the vampire genre a little bit. want to make sure right now that we put a, a plug in. Stick around at the end of the show. We're going to have an interview with uh, film producer Hadil Retta, mm. um, who we, we had a great conversation with about The Ride, which is a movie that's coming out this Friday on uh, Amazon Prime with Ludacris and Sasha Alexander and Blake Sheldon. Um, amazing true story about this this BMX rider and, and his family. Uh, you're definitely going to want to check it out. It's been an amazing story that Hadil tells us about how the film got made and then sabotaged by the pandemic and then, you know, had to fight their way through to get back on the, on the, on the calendar. So stick around at the end of the show for the interview with Hadil Retta and the movie The Ride. Um, what else we got on the, on the TV front here? Uh, Blood and Treasure Season 1. You seen this? I have not seen that one. Uh it, I, I I caught a couple of episodes on it. Um it is it's a, it's kind of an international um uh art thief show. It feels like it's somewhere, but it wants to like be a, maybe a little bit of Ocean's eleven, twelve, thirteen for television, maybe a touch of Simon Templar and the Saint. Um I wish it had a bigger budget. Uh, but as it is, it it seems like they, they're kind of on something um you know what they like it, there's the former FBI agent and all kinds of really it's got you know it has got a vibe uh i think they could do more with it than they are but for a first season uh for a network show it's it's it, it it's it's on its way so i'm i i hope we get more seasons of this thing the pandemic's obviously
1: interrupted everything but not 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 bad at all is this is this uh Catherine the Great uh is this is that the uh, the, the the series with uh El Fanning
0: so yeah, so here's what's interesting: we got two of them this week that are both about Catherine the Great. We've got the HBO miniseries Catherine the Great, starring Helen Mirren. Okay. And then we've got uh, season one of the L. Fanning and Nicholas Holt series, The Great. That one I watched. Is...
1: I was wondering. I was wondering what
0: was going on. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, it's fascinating that they're they're both out at exactly the same time. Basically, the um. The, the woman who, you know, in the 18th century created and, and built the Russian Empire. I don't know if a lot of people realize how significant Catherine the Great was, but a, an extraordinary monarch in in history. And uh, my mother used to talk a lot about Catherine the Great because my mother was, you know, Prussian. And when you grow up that close to Russia, you, you learn a lot about uh, your enemies. And um, I gotta say, both of these are pretty great. I I would recommend that people
1: watch them. Well, the great uh, the series, the one with El Fanning, which of course you know they, we we meet her as a very very young girl. I yeah. the young. She wasn't a woman at all. She was a girl. Uh, yeah. And, and when and she's carted off uh, 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 to Russia to 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 be married all, and 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 it just goes through that whole little historical period, and it sort of it sort of shows us how she learned to become the person. Whom you're talking about, who is yeah. the person that Helen Mirren is playing in that other exactly? Yeah. and it's and it's really
0: it's. I mean, I love the juxtaposition of the two. Um, I mean, if I had to choose, obviously, the Helen Mirren miniseries is just you know uh, uh, incomparable. It's really really good. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's really a nice juxtaposition between the two, and I hope we get to get more seasons of the Great soon. I well, really the all, the all
1: fanning thing is kind of a comedy. It's funny. I, it, it's, uh, it's, it's,
0: you know, different tone. It's a different tone.
1: Different tone, completely.
0: Yeah. 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 It's a lighter, lighter tone. Um, you know, we got a couple of, a couple of FX shows here. Uh, season fourteen of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and uh, season two of What We Do in the Shadows. Ah. Uh, I, I don't. I have never, I'll be honest, I don't get the tone of either of these shows. Me either. But but clearly somebody does. Uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. 14 seasons. This is Danny DeVito's most successful television show. Longer than Taxi. Longer than Taxi. How is that possible? Eh. I don't get it. Um, But, you know, people love this show. It it has kind of a low-budget vibe to it, which has always been how it kind of uh, got on TV in the first place. I mean, if you love it, you love it. You don't need me saying anything about it. And what we do in the shadows, I don't know, you know, season two, ten episodes. Um, it's based on the film, you know, the, the Jermaine Clement, Taika Waititi film uh, from New Zealand, which was, which which is, you know, very popular and which I think is rather funny and tongue in cheek. The TV show, I guess, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really capture what the movie did, but I don't know if it needs to. Anyway, it's on FX as well.
1: Uh Babylon, Babylon, uh, Berlin, uh, which is a German series. Uh, uh set, of, it's set in it's set in Germany in the twenties. Yeah, it's the golden era of the twenties. Tom Ticker is one of the creators it's of this series, which is a great show. I, I like I like about it a lot. It's a gorgeous show. It's really uh, good. Set in a, at a really really, it's a, you know, it's a crime drama thriller, and uh, it's just it's just really really excellent. Um, um, if you if you love all those Tom Ticker films of the oh I guess going all the way back to the nineties now. Uh, I mean, it, run, run, 19... run. Yeah. yeah like the, uh, I, uh,
0: perfume. Yeah. Perfume is another great one. Uh, the, the, the emperor, uh, the, the, no, the, the princess and the warrior. Oh yeah. The princess. And one the of warrior. my favorites. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. You know what? I mean, the fact that it's set in 1929 is really genius because it's, it's the between the wars period.
1: It's the it's Weimar Republic, but it's like right the at the violin. beginning yeah. of, of the, of the yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it, 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 it just gets that whole cabaret moment. Right. Yeah. It just, it really, it really gets it. It's just beautifully made. I mean, I, I don't know what they're doing in Europe, but some of the best looking television these days is coming out of Europe, not Hollywood. It's just a, it's a gorgeous looking show. A lot of extras here. Uh, behind the scenes stuff, making up documentary, which is pretty great. 16 episodes on four discs. That is uh, from Kino, seasons one and two on four discs. Really good. Mm. <coughs> uh, <coughs> gosh, excuse me here. Monogamy season one which gets the possessory credit Craig Ross Jr.'s monogamy uh, from UMC. I, I, you know, I mean, uh, this also feels like kind of a dated show. Uh, you know, four different couples brought together for a, uh, a, a, a therapy experiment called Switch Therapy in order to save their marriages. And uh, I don't know that I really want to watch that, but it... Uh, it obviously it means enough to somebody. I'm am assuming they're probably going to get a second season out of this, but it kind of creeps me out a little bit, to be honest. <laughs> it's a little bit strange. Um, you know, you know what also is really cool is Quiz Ah, with Michael Sheen. Uh, this is an AMC production with Matt Matthew mcfadden uh, uh, Cheyenne Clifford, and Michael Sheen, based on the true story of Uh, what. This is like the UK television version of what Quiz Show was here. Quiz Show oh, of course the Robert, big, Red, the uh, Robert, Robert Redford show. Yeah. yeah. So this is a this is a similar scandal in the UK, a giant scandal. And um it, it all centered around Who Wants to be a millionaire. Now, nobody here really knew about this, I don't think, because Who Wants to be a Millionaire came here and took off and nobody knew that there was a scandal associated with the show in the UK, but there was. it not so know that. I know. So that's what this is. And, um, it, it, you know, quite an interesting quiz show to be able to cheat your way to, to winning. But um, Michael Sheen really, really nails it. It's a it's a really, really interesting, uh, interesting story. It's worth checking out. Let's see what else we got.
1: Docu series, the curse, uh, the, the curse of what is this thing called? The Curse of, which one are we oh, talking about? Oh, The Curse about? of Oak Island, Season 7. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and it took, so, so a long, long time ago, I was watching this, and, and it, I didn't realize it, it had been on that long, because you think I would have found it by now. But anyway, it's about these brothers. History Channel. Yeah, History Channel thing. Uh, and they're looking for this treasure, this treasure hunting, uh, uh, series, uh, but it's, yeah. but it's just, but it's just, this big old family and all these people involved in it. And, and it's all the drama that goes on by, as it's all the case with these things, but man, uh, they're still hunting this treasure. Uh, there's, and, uh, and, and, uh, it's, it's still a mess and it's into the seventh season. And that's a little bit surprising.
0: Uh, Showtime, Shangri-La documentary series, which, uh, is, 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 you know, Showtime doesn't often dip into the documentary series, but this one's quite good. It's four parts and, uh, it, it looks at the music industry primarily through music producer, uh, Rick Rubin's, um, experience and career and eyes. Mm. And, um, if you've never heard of Rick Rubin, he was a co-founder of Def Jam. Yep. Uh, when he was a when he was a college student, and uh, w- wound up basically launching tons of careers, including you know Beastie Boys and Run DMC and Public Enemy. Um, and it's uh, if you want to know how the music industry works or at least worked at this time, really, really fascinating. It doesn't it doesn't mince words. It's it's quite lively. Ruben is a very colorful character, and you learn a, an awful lot. It's it's not just kind of a sensational look at here all the. All the ins and outs of a really messed up industry it really it really takes you through it in a very very entertaining way it 's quite good um, one of the more popular shows on streaming is the bureau the French series oh, now yeah. in season now in season five um, with uh, Mathieu Amalric uh, just absolutely nailing it um, this is you know Mathieu Kassovitz absolutely nails it i mean this is a really really great um uh, espionage slash procedural show, and it's very intense. It's uh, I, I, I'm surprised it hasn't been remade here like they did um, with the Israeli show. Um, oh, was it Claire, Claire, was it,
1: was it, was it the, Claire Danes? Claire yeah, Danes uh, Homeland. Uh, Homeland. Yeah.
0: So I'm, you know, Homeland. Like if you've seen the Israeli version of that, oh no brainer. I kind of felt the same thing about this. Like oh, the Bureau's going to totally get a get an American reboot. Hasn't yet, so I'm still expecting it. But maybe they feel like the you know this version of it is 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 good enough to really really hold its own. Anyway, um, really you know globe trotting, high production value, like we were talking about with the the German show. Uh, I, I really really worth checking out. Season five, it, every bit as intense as anything that's come before it.
1: Uh, Flesh and Blood, a really uh, well produced British uh, mini series uh, with the Melis and, uh, and and Stephen Ray and uh, you know, all, all these sort of extraordinary um, uh, uh, British actors, uh, family drama is what's going on here, uh, and it, it ends up involving a murder. Um, Stephen Ray, uh, Imelda Staunton, British drama. Uh, what, what can I say? It's a it, yeah, You had you, you had me at Imelda Staunton.
0: That's all. <laughs> Honestly, that's all I needed. Um, starting to wrap out here before we get into our interview with Hadil Reda. Uh, the plot against America. Uh, which was created by David Simon of The Wire, uh, along with Ed Burns, and it's based on the Philip Roth novel, which is one of these alternate history things that, um, you know, I think we kind of wore that out a little bit, Mm. but this treats it less kind of genre, less sci-fi-ish, and a little bit more intelligently. Um, Anyway, it looks primarily at this New Jersey Jewish family and uh the the Charles Lindbergh plays a part in this, and I won't tell you exactly how the alternate history wraps out um but it it really is quite a fascinating look at some very, very real figures and events that might have become this alternate history if not for you know certain other very small events that that may or may not have happened. I know that's very cryptic, but yeah. most of these alternate history things like what if the South had won the civil war? The man, the man in
1: the high castle, man in the high
0: castle. Right. Like, like a lot of these just, they're not even realistic. They're not even close. They're not even trying. This actually is trying and it's trying to be informative and scholarly and a little bit educational about it. Yeah. There's some leaps of logic, but great cast, you know, went on a writer and, and, and David Krumholtz, John Turturro, a lot of, a lot of great people in this. And, uh, very, very smartly written. So that is, uh, that is the HBO limited series, The Plot Against America, worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Any, any, any that we've missed here that uh, we, we should re- uh, do as a final one, Tim? Not off think. the
1: top of my head. I think we, we saw the ground oh. all down pretty good. What do you got? Yeah, you know what? Here's a good one to end on. Uh, the
0: documentary, What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kale. Oh, yes. Um, so a lot of our colleagues work with Pauline Kale. Uh, were acolytes of hers, you know, for for the early parts of their careers, and and sort of learned at her, at the hem of her skirt, we might say. Uh, and uh, I I I appreciate what this film is trying to do. I think there's a lot more to Pauline Kael than what this film gives you. I think she's much more complex than one film can possibly contain. But uh, as a starter for why she was such a significant uh, figure in film criticism and in film history, and, you know, you have to realize at this point in time, film critics could make an impact in ways they can't anymore. Like film critics just don't mean anything anymore today. It's hard enough for a film to become meaningful. Pauline Kael could make or break a movie. And she was caustic and a brilliant writer and really didn't uh, didn't care what, you know, the impact of her writing was. She was going to lay it on the line the way that she saw it. Um, she's just going to call it the way she saw it. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a great beginning to understanding Pauline Kale, but I don't think it's by any means the complete picture. So, uh, really worth checking out. Rob Garver, um, is the, uh, is the director and producer and editor of this and, uh, does quite a good job. Um, the, uh, also worth, worth noting is that our very good friend, Doug Blush was a supervising editor on this. So that's one reason why it is so well put together. Doug Blush is, uh, is, you know, one of the top editors and producers in the documentary world, and a really great guy. He helped work on our, uh, yeah. our documentary Schlock all those many years ago, yeah. and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. Is the voice of Pauline Kale when they need a
1: uh, a voice, and she does a wonderful job doing yeah, reading it, so. letters pauline i I was a fan of pauline kale uh, she was a food writer before she became a film critic but but in, yeah. in that period in the middle sixties to, to to the early seventies when 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 new the what they call the new Hollywood filmmakers were emerging yeah. Uh, yeah she was a big fan of what they were doing and and so so you know, you might not necessarily say that she made people like Scorsese or, or, or whoever, but she certainly, you know, was writing about, uh, you know, the work that they were doing uh, in in, in ways that hadn't been written about before. And she would, you know, Pauline, uh, she would, she would be very descriptive in her, in her her reviews of things. So, you know, that, that, that kill scene in Bonnie and Clyde, or or when the blood comes down on Carrie, if you, you some of the stuff that happens in Taxi Driver, if you read her reviews of those films, uh, she really took you inside it. Uh, so that's, yes, she did. that's the way she that's that was Pauline Cale. Yes, she did.
0: All right. With that, we are now going to dovetail into our our interview with uh, with the filmmaker, producer, executive and in this case, also co-screenwriter Hadil Retta for the film The Ride. Uh, she produces she co-wrote the screenplay. Uh, amazing true story. And uh, we're just going to take it off from here and let you listen to uh, to uh, Hadil Retta talking about The Ride. So we are really, really excited this week to be able to talk to uh, film executive and film producer, Hadil Retta, who has been around for a long time and, and has been involved with a lot of really interesting films, all the way back to, G- Tim will remember we, the, the film Heartbreakers with Sigourney uh, Weaver and Gene Hackman, um, 16 Blocks, which was, which was a, a terrific action film. And Hadil is involved in a new film that has a really interesting history to it called The Ride. It's a true story, was supposed to be released months ago, and, Hadil, thank you for being with us today. Really, really appreciate your, your coming on to talk about um, the, the challenges of getting a film released in the era of COVID when you were supposed to be released theatrically, and you've had to pivot, and you've had to make all these adjustments. Um, talk a little bit about the film, which is such a really great uh, true story, how it came together, and how you uh, kind of what what happened when covid interfered with the release of the
2: film Thank you thank you for having me first of all on the show um yeah it's a really it's a really interesting long journey for this movie and just when we thought we were done with the journey along came covid so it added uh it added a complication that we you know we just you just think you're past the finish line and then you're like nope not the case and as you know how in independent movies go um there's always the obstacles from beginning to end but we shot this movie uh literally four years ago is when we shot this film and it's uh it's been it's been kind of a long road in terms of we cutting recutting uh and we tested the film and the film tested through the roof with audiences it tested you know at 97% or something. It was was a really high score, like along the same line as Green Book or one of those films. And we were able to get theatrical distribution on the film through Roadside Attractions, who's got a phenomenal record with releasing these types of independent films uh, in that market. They released um, Peanut Butter Falcon. Uh, They they released a, a bunch of a bunch of films that you know people wouldn't have thought would uh, be a box office success, and, and they really were, and they knew how to market it. So we were overjoyed when Roadside picked up the film and we were slated for a July release on uh, 600 screens plus. We had a wide release, we were ready to go, and we kept waiting it out. And then along came COVID in March, And we just waited month by month, hoping that we could condense and press, press our, um, publicity time and, and, and maybe have a a shorter lead time and, and none of it just didn't, it just didn't work. And at some point we had to call it. And the problem really was because the, the market was getting so oversaturated with the films that were pushed we knew every month we waited that the theatrical uh, films were gonna get kind of just, it was gonna be a bottleneck at some point. And we just, we knew we couldn't survive in that bottleneck of all these bigger films. And it was Tenet and Wonder Woman, all these things. So we were juggling constantly day, day to day. We were looking at the schedule and when things were gonna open up and what was gonna open up and then how we would fare and how, where we fall and so we decided to just go the way of streaming and that was um you know that was a tough decision but i guess i guess you know really it is the best thing for the film at this point cuz people are still at home a lot of the major markets are still not open people are watching at home they're they're watching films all the time nobody knew that we were going to go this long So we have uh, the film is now being premiered on Amazon Prime next Friday, this Friday the third uh, November thirteenth, and um, you know that's that's the result. It's not it's not a bad result. It's actually pretty good given the circumstances. But of course we were we were heartbroken uh, because all the work it took to get this little passion project to the big screen. And we really felt like it, it could have been a sleeper hit. It's it's a great movie. It has a ton of heart to it, and it was great alternative programming. Uh, so so yeah, that's that's sort of the story of this uh, of this little film called The Ride.
0: And and just to sort of underline the the plot a little bit here, it's the story the true story of uh, of John Bolchens, who is a is a major BMX figure, and who had this incredibly troubled upbringing a delinquent youth uh grew up just you know in this in, uh, basically uh you know uh, like uh, basically was a white supremacist uh at, at this point when he's adopted by a mixed race couple and which changes his life and played in the film by sasha alexander as his mom and Ludacris as his dad and yeah. i the thing that I, I i find so fascinating is the casting of Ludacris, who is is what you know? We, we Tim and I talk about this all the time that rappers, you know, music industry people typically don't do well in movies, but rappers do, and they seem to have this knack for adapting to so to have an incredible range. Ludacris, we all obviously remember from you know Crash, best picture winner, and this is not typically this is a a professional heartwarming father family man figure, which is not what we would normally associate Ludacris with as being a rapper, but he nails it. It's really a an incredible turn for him. So talk. could you talk a little bit too about um, how the casting came together and when he, I have to imagine there were other actors who would have wanted this part because it's a great part. What made you guys settle on him?
2: He was really the first place we stopped and we all loved him and I think it was because of Crash. And, you know, Chris, and it, you know, he goes, it's Chris Bridges and he goes by Chris Ludacris Bridges for, with his, with his acting. And, um, I think he just has such a natural ability to pull people in. And, you know, the role was definitely something that was different for him. He hadn't played this role before. It was very, very different from what he did in Crash or any other film. Cause he plays a dad, you know, he plays a dad that is struggling with parenthood, any kind of parenthood. And he is a dad himself and he's a great dad is a terrific father. He has these amazing daughters and he really was able to make that character feel so relatable and anybody who has kids knows that feeling, right? And he, he, he improved a lot too a lot of the stuff that came out in the film was Chris just sort of like, ah, this is sort of the way it feels. And I think it came across very natural and people just uh, people just respond to that.
1: You know, it, it is, I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt, go on. Yeah,
2: you know, and then the other thing I just want to say about it is that, um, you know, this, what appealed to him about the story, I think was also the message of this was very different from a lot of other films that tackle this race issue. And I think the thing that really uh, pulled him in was the fact that, you know, it's always hard work. I mean, whether it's, whether you have an issue of foster care or your own kid, or you have race mixed into the, to the, um, to the picture. I mean, it is always hard work and perseverance. And if you just kind of stick to that commitment and you follow your heart and you know that love will sort of lead the way, you're, you're gonna persevere. And I think that's the beauty of that message. And I think that's what really, he held that torch for us through the film and through the process.
0: Tim, Tim, you, you you were saying something. Well, it
1: does in fact seem sort of uh, apropos to the to the moment that we're dealing with, particularly after some of the the issues to, regarding Black Lives Matter and all of that. This summer, this film uh, thematically seems to sort of fit the moment. So I, I'm I'm wondering, with that in mind, how the you know, the the adapting to coming out as a streaming film, how you consider that the way the film would sort of like fit into the into the moment of the, the zeitgeist.
2: Well, I, you know, I personally would have still liked to see this film in theaters at this moment in time with everything going on in this country. Um, Regardless of, I think, I think it still would have had the benefit of that marketing, but I still believe that with, you know, with it dropping on Amazon, and I think people will see it, and I think it will catch some word of mouth. um, And look, it, it is a movie that um, at its theme is about closing that bridge and closing the divide and not judging every book by its cover. And just because it seems like it's looking one way, if you dig a little deeper, you'll find maybe that there's something else there and there's something more there. And I think that's exactly what all of us need to be looking at right now is that it's just so easy to look at something and say well if it if it's doing this it's got to be this you know and i think that this movie kind of turns that on its head a little bit because you know you have this kid who's from a white supremacist family who has been you know abused and tortured because he's got a swastika on his neck when he's going when he and he spends his uh, his childhood basically in juvie and has a really really difficult time with race and he comes out of that only to find that he has now a a black foster dad who has his own issues with race from his past so they have to really put those two things aside to connect find happiness and and thrive and and survive. And it's really kind of beautiful how that works and I think that that to me is just very symbolic of you know where where we are now is we've got to put some of these uh these notions aside our past these these past things that we have bought into whether it's through our own lives or through the media and really connect with uh with human beings. And I think that's, to, to me, that, that really is, I'm hoping that's what it speaks to with, uh, with audiences. Well, what,
0: what works, what really spoke to me is, uh, you know, and there have been a number of films uh, about this as well, including the, you know, the documentary about the, the Chicago uh, mm-hmm. crew team. And where, where it's, all, it's not about the big picture, about you know, legislation and, and the political process. It's about the little things that individual people do. And what, what fascinates me about the story is that it is true. This isn't something that some writer cooked up you know, to just sort of uh, preach to, to people about how to change their lives. It literally happened. This, this family actually did come together in this incredibly brave way. Could you talk about the 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 real story here and and whatever contact you had with the real, you know, uh, Bolchin's family and and how that all how that kind of morphed into the movie?
2: Well, John Bolchin's honestly is is one of the most positive strongest people I've ever met in my life. And even as we were we were writing the screenplay and we went through a lot of his life as you can imagine in the research of this a lot of it we had to, um, you know, play down a little bit because it was too harsh. I mean, what he went through in real life was um, was just, it was something I didn't want to go to that depth because I thought it would be traumatizing. Mm. So we didn't tell all of what this poor child went through. Um, we, we definitely tried to uh, water that down a little bit. But he he really, when you know what he went through and how this man still was able to come out of it and be as successful of a human being that he is now, it's its kind of amazing. And he's still very close to his parents. And, uh, you know, you would never know. You would never know by meeting John Bolchens that uh, he had been through that type of upbringing Uh, because he's just full of love love to everybody, love, forgiveness, tolerance, acceptance, like all those things. Those are, those are real. So he, whenever, you know, when we used to screen this film at, uh, you know, we'd go to festivals and, and people would say, parents and, uh, teens would come up to us and say, well, we thought, we thought our life was difficult, but now we can see that we can do anything. I mean, the, the, what he went through is nothing compared to the problems that I'm facing in my life and look at him. And I think that, that was the real, um, the real message that he had. And he's a big spokesman in the foster care arena as well. He's, uh, he's quite involved in all of that, but he was on set every day. And he was really kind of giving us his input of how the story went down and his relationship with his parents. I mean, he was really the heart of the movie. So um, he's just fantastic.
1: I I, I had another question about your whole distribution situation. You know, understanding that it's a tough, a really tough situation to not only achieve a theatrical distribution, you know, a tough thing all about itself, but then to lose it in these circumstances. But Wade Wade will attest to the fact that, um, you know, he and I are are critics on on Film Week. And you know, over the last six or seven months, you know, pretty much all of that—that the, that sort of separation between movies, theatrical movies, streaming movies, Netflix films—that we did not used to talk about on Film Week are films that we talk about now. Um, uh, films that are on Netflix and streaming on Prime, and frankly, even TV series. So the the entire ecosystem has changed so much that, frankly, nothing about being. Uh, theatrically released anymore really matters to those of us who talk about movies. So in some ways it sort of equalizes the playing field a little bit with that divide being gone. I don't know if you've noticed that or if it makes any, any difference in the way that your film exists out there, but have you thought about that at all?
2: I mean, I have, and I think about it as not just for this movie. I think about it for my upcoming movies and how to proceed and how to move forward with you know, I'm in development now on several films that are meant to be theatrical, and I kind of wonder now what that road looks like because you're right; it has been equalized. And you know, you're when you're scrolling through iTunes or Hulu or anything else right now, you're you're kind of like I'm not really sure what the 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 difference is. So, what is going to uh, make those films stand out and it's really it's the same thing that was in the theatrical market it's going to be word of mouth you know and how people people are talking I watch this I like this check this out I mean but it is it's very strange it is very strange because you we've been taught to you know have standards of quality and, and that is, is kind of changing with this uh this this new era of no theatrical at least for the moment and who knows where that ends up but some of the things that you're seeing now on streaming some of it's just they're they're fantastic you would see them in a theater and some of them not at all but you have to go through a lot of stuff so I don't know I I'm not really sure what the issue is. I am hoping that our film is a bit of a standout as a new title and as new films drop, I have noticed they are getting a lot of, of uh, views. So I'm hoping that that um, that helps the film get its legs.
0: If you if you kind of step back, if you had known when you were making the film and and obviously hoping for a theatrical release, if you had known then. This, that this would happen now? Would it have changed any of your thinking about how the film was made or how you, how you would go about selling it? Or would you, would you not change a thing?
2: No, I don't think I would change a thing. I mean, obviously we put a lot more work in the detail of this film for a theatrical, as you, as you know, like you spend more time on the music and the sound and everything. You, you finish a film to be seen in theaters for that experience. There is an experience to that. And it is a different mindset when you're filming and finishing a movie with a, a, a theatrical in mind. It's, it's just that different process. But I don't think it's lost on the streaming. I think it's just there's, there's more nuance to that experience if you do see it in a the theater. There's a lot more to get from it.
0: Well, that's great. Tim, did you have any other thoughts?
1: I, uh, well, I uh, deeply, deeply appreciate the movie, uh, what it's about. Uh, I have seen it, and I do want to tell audiences to get out there and, uh, and, and check it out. It will uh, affect you and uh, have a lot of meaning for you in a number of
2: different ways.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, and I and I love that there are a lot of, for BMX people, uh, there are cameos in there that I think will, uh, will resonate and- They'll get a kick out of but it is you know uh, kudos to you at an age when it's really easy to make a lot of dark movies and we talk about this a lot too dark movies are just uh, really really everywhere these days and getting something that's really positive and uplifting and that you know tugs at your heartstrings is, is really nice now and again and uh, you guys did a really really good one so thank you again for it um Adil Reta, producer of *The Ride*, which is uh, going to be popping on Prime Video, Amazon Prime Video, on Friday, November 13th. One of the good times to celebrate a Friday the 13th. Adil, thank you again so
2: much. Thank you so much for having me, guys.